So thank you all for being here, our City Light uh, preview service number two. So we're excited to have you all joining us, uh, excited to see what God is up to here and what he's going to create by his own hands and his own word and his own spirit. Uh, so thankful for all of you. Uh, we're thankful too for some of us from the neighborhood who have joined us. Uh, we're doing some translation for them in the back. So if you're here and uh, you speak Spanish primarily, we'd love to, to help translate that for you in the back. Uh, and just to put that here for us, we'd love as best we can for this to be a, a place where people of different languages and places can come uh, and get served and hear the word uh, together. So as best as the Lord would provide, uh, we would love for this to be a space for that uh, as best as we can do. So we're super thankful uh, to have you all here and uh, really excited about what God might have for all of us today. Uh, just as a reminder, if you are a father, we had Father's Day gifts out in the front. Uh, there was a book, and there was also supposed to be a Father's Day keychain for you guys, but, you know, shipping is shipping, and somebody didn't bring it when they were supposed to. Uh, I would totally blame the company. It had nothing to do with my, my lack of planning ahead. Uh, but we're super excited to maybe give that to you. We're going to get it, so we'll just give it to you later. I don't know. Uh, it won't be Father's Day anymore, but you'll still probably be a dad. So uh, if you come back, we have a little keychain, a uh, little multi-tool thing for you that says uh, Happy Father's Day. Uh, but go ahead and take a book. Uh, we have some in Spanish and English for whatever uh, is best for you. And we'd love for you to, to grow in your knowledge of God as a father. At the end of the service, we're looking forward to praying over uh, every father in the room that you would live the life God has called you to. So today we're going to be in Luke 15 uh, and combining the mission of this church with an understanding of the fatherhood of God. Uh, when I was at my sister's house a few weeks ago, we had uh, my four-year-old, who was the one in the blue collar shirt, who was up here in front with me a little while ago. Uh, he was throwing a ball at my sister's house, and you know, you're not supposed to have balls in the house. Any parent uh, who has kids know this. Uh, bad things happen. So he got upset. He threw the ball as, as hard as he could, and he knocked over a candle holder on top of her dresser. The candle holder fell to the ground and broke in half. And so this angry look on his face turned to fear as soon as he realized that he had done something bad uh, and that he would be in trouble. So we began to talk with him. Hey, that's, you shouldn't do that. Whatever. We, we walked him through that. Well, now he's, he becomes really afraid. He's actually, whoa, hey, cat-like reflexes. All right. He's actually afraid. Uh, and my sister, if you knew her, she's like the nicest human being ever, like non-threatening whatsoever. Uh, and she, he was afraid of her coming home after she picked her own kids up from school uh, because she would see that the candle was broken. And like totally afraid. I like, didn't want to see her. He was like totally freaking out uh, about when she would come home. So we began to try to explain. First we were mad at him, and then we felt really bad for him because he was really afraid. We're like, no, she'll be fine. Like, don't worry about it. She's going to be okay. She loves you more than the candle holder. I promise you shouldn't have done that, and you need to learn, and we're going to punish you for not listening. But on the same side, like, you are loved, and you are worth more than the candle holder. So don't worry about it. Uh, and he was just super terrified of what would happen. And even though it was wrong, and it was disobedience, the value of him was greater than the value of the candle holder. And I think sometimes we misunderstand God and have the same type of difficulties relating to him. That when we mess up or when we do things that aren't right, when we go too far, when we know that we're not right before the Lord, when we know there's things that are wrong in our life, we view him in this way and we're scared to approach him. And because we're scared to approach him, that changes everything about our life. If we don't engage with and interact and relate to God, 
then everything else about our lives will be off. If we're scared to approach God and we don't understand grace and haven't worked through that, if we treat God like up and down every day and we think he treats us based on our behavior, everything else about our life in terms of how we live our mission, how we do whatever it is the Lord's called us to do, our, our holiness and obedience is affected by our view of God. We won't go to him, and because we don't go to him, we don't experience his love, power, forgiveness. We don't grow to become more like him. We slowly begin to fade the other way. And it all started because we were afraid of what he thinks about us when we messed up. We were afraid of how God might view us. And so what I want to do today is two simple things into one thing. I want to clarify the mission of this church by helping us understand the end from the Bible, the value God holds for people. So I want to clarify the mission of the church. Why are we here? What are we doing? By understanding from the Bible the value that God holds for people. And we're going to see, even if it's just one person, and even if that one person is a great, what we would call a great sinner, even though we're all equally sinful. So the value God holds for people, and even if it's just one person, and even if that person is a terribly wicked, rebellious sinner, we want to understand the value God holds for that person, the value God holds for us, so that we can love and relate to God well, and so that we go out into the world with God's perspective and God's mindset with the way that God views everybody else. So the question really for everything is, what does it mean for God to be our Father? What does God do? How do we understand that? So Luke 15, if y'all open your Bibles, we're going to read through that, uh, the whole passage. And we're going to spend most of our time uh, in the prodigal son part, but we're going to read through the whole thing. So starting in Luke 15, it's like 30 verses. So uh, there's two ways to listen to a preacher read a text, actively or passively. Uh, passively means you're just listening to me read. Actively means you're looking at the words yourself, you're thinking about them, you're going along with it. So that's what we should do, all of us engaged in the word together. So this is what he says, uh, chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. And they were saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or another example, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, this has happened in my life recently, my wife lost her wallet like two days ago. It is still lost to this day. So far, nobody is using our debit card, so we have no idea if it's just in some nook and cranny in the house. She thinks maybe she accidentally threw it away. It could be sitting at the park somewhere. Who knows? This is the life uh, of having a ton of kids running around as you forget about wallets and stuff like that. Uh, and so we're in this right now, seeking desperately, you know, like you're, you're, it's a wall like this big and you're looking in places where something that big can't fit. You're just looking everywhere. It doesn't, nothing logical about it. It's just the van, you're turning everything out of the van, out of the house, still can't find it. So this is exactly how we feel. So y'all know how it is when you lose your wallet, you lose something important, how desperately you look for it. He's saying she loses a coin. Now does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Well, of course she does. And when she finds it, what do you do, right? Well, she's saying, rejoice with me to her friends and neighbors. I have found the coin that I lost. So in the same way, right, if we found our wallet, when you find that thing you're looking for, you're so excited. And then he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So just go ahead and from those passages, be thinking about how does God value people? 
Okay, verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise. I will go to my father and I will say to him. And we've all planned a speech for our parents, right? We know how this is. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he makes a plan. He makes a speech. He goes. When he arose and came to his father, while he was still a long way off, you should underline that, his father saw him, felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, here's his speech, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, almost ignoring what he just said, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son. He was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and he asked him, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not my brother, right? When this son of yours came. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. It's an amazing, amazing story. Worth your time to spend some time reading through on your own. So there's four things we learn about the Father from this passage. We're going to work our way through. You go ahead and write them down, then we'll do them one by one. Four things. Number one, He runs after you. The Father runs after you. Number two, the Father is ready to receive you. The Father is ready to receive you. Number three, the Father rejoices in your repentance. The Father rejoices in your repentance. Number four... The Father reserves the kingdom for you. The Father reserves the kingdom for you. So we're going to walk through these four things. It's going to give us a filter by which we live our life missionally for Jesus, by which we do church. And it's going to help us understand how much God values and loves you. So before we jump into those four things from that one parable, I want us to look real quick at these prior two parables. Uh, these first ten verses teach us something very important. We're going to call it the value of the one. The value of the one. You look, the whole, I mean, all three parables are about one thing, right? One sheep, one coin, one child, one son. But particularly in these first two, we learn the value 
of the one, how there's 99 sheep, don't pay attention, there's one we have to go after. She loses 10 coins, she doesn't rejoice in the fact that she has nine. She values and almost overvalues the one. And so in a world full of desire for mass influence, more posts, more likes, more influence, this is what everybody's after. We learn biblically to steer clear of that and go after and understand the value of the one. The value of the one. In a world full of desires for mass influence, in churches full of desires for mass influence, in pastors who want rooms full of people, we learn the value of the one. And not just anyone, but we learn the value of the people who are cast off from society. We learn the value of those that are dismissed by religious people. We learn the value of those who are on the outskirts of society, those who have made a mess of their lives or who have had others make messes of their lives for them. We learn the value of the one, and particularly, like we saw earlier, the great centered one, which is really all of us in one degree or another. We learn the value of people regardless of their behavior. We learn the value of people according to how God sees them. And we learn to value the one. There is amazing value in just one person. This is the heart of Jesus. And what we want to be is a church who cares about each individual personally. A church who certainly would love to reach as many people as possible, but a church who rejoices with heaven when one person decides to follow Jesus. When one life gets restored, when one life gets changed, this is worth throwing a party. This is the thing we rejoice in. And each one of us maintains that mindset, not to think, how can I go out and change the world? We change the world by changing one life, one person at a time. The question that we should all be asking is, who's your one person? Who's your one person that the Lord's called to go share this message with in your life? Who's the one person that you might know that's an outcast or separated from society? Who's the one person that you or your friends or somebody think is so far from God they would never come to know him? Who's that one person in your life? And if we as a church all begin to go after that one person, little by little, we would see God's kingdom come and his will be done in Falls Church in Northern Virginia, in the world as it is in heaven. A people who value the one. A people who care deeply about the pain and the suffering of one person. A people who see with God's eyes those who maybe aren't deemed as important to the world. These are the kind of people that we want to be. The kind of people that it requires biblical perspective. We're not naturally this way. You have to realize, and I have to realize, we love big things. We think crowds are important. And crowds are fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with crowds. But we're naturally inclined to devalue the little thing and to overvalue the greater thing. And we want God's perspective to see the one as the great thing. And we're all living life that way, engaged with and thinking about, man, how can God use me to reach that one person? What does God want me to do to reach that person? We're doing that all collectively. As we've said last time, this is not a landing place. It's a launching pad. It's a place to be equipped to go use what God's put in your life to make disciples every day of the week. We said it last time, God doesn't need, or God doesn't need anything, but false church and around here doesn't need another service. They need another church to run another service. They need a group of people that are living out the mission of God. This is what they need. This is what the world needs around us. They don't need another church service. And I love church service. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. This is what I do. I'm a fan of church services. But that's not what the world around us needs. It needs a church service that launches a group of people to go reach the one. That's what this world needs. And we all need to own that and live that together. We need God's perspective to really value the one, and particularly the one the world doesn't value. As much as we'd like to say that we're that way, we're, we're, we're prone to be much like the world where important people are important to us. People that have resources are more necessary to us. 
people that may not be as dirty and grimy or more favorable to us. And as much as we'd like to say it's not true, it is true of every human being on the earth that we're naturally inclined because of our sin nature to value and overvalue certain people and to undervalue other people. And we want God's perspective. We want to value the one, particularly the one that's cast off, the one that society deems unimportant. And we want to build God's church by valuing and prioritizing what God values and prioritizes. We're a church who cares about the one. We're a people who care about the one. And one by one, we'll see God's kingdom come. So we value the one. This is the principle we want to live by. What we're going to see now is these four things. So let's go ahead and jump into that. It's going to be relatively uh, quick. So number one, the father runs after you. The father runs after you. I love you. Look at verse 20. He arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you really want to get good stuff out of the Bible, you can take sentences like that and just sit and think about it. This is bizarre. This is not how we would generally treat people who have treated us this way. This is a unique type of love, a love that a father has for his child regardless of his behavior. Not only does he wait and say, well, let's see what he can do. I love how there's no hesitation. And so often we view God like that, right? Like, I'm going to come back, but maybe he won't quite give me all himself. Maybe I'll get a little bit as we go. We'll work our way back to having a good relationship with God. So I messed up last week. If I read my Bible and do nice things all week long, then God will, will feel good again. Uh, and then maybe I'll be able to experience all that God has for me once I get back up to the level that God intends for me. Uh, and that's not at all how God approaches it. Now, he doesn't dismiss your sin. He died for it. Your sin is my sin. Your sin is very serious. And we're going to see that in the repentance part. He doesn't dismiss it. It's not, not a problem. But he took care of the problem. Therefore, he runs. He runs after you because his grace is sufficient to cover your sin. Jesus paid for that. So he doesn't have to judge you again for it. And so now if you trust in Christ, you have access to God. He sees you as a perfect person because of Jesus. He sees you like he sees Jesus, and Jesus is perfect. And so though we have flaws in this flesh, God doesn't look at you like that. And we have to understand that when we mess up, when things go wrong in our life, whether we are a follower of Jesus, we mess up, we can run back to him. Or whether you're in this room and you've never followed Jesus, God is, we're going to see, ready to receive you. He's running after you. And one of the evidences you know that God's running after you is because you're in the room right now. God is pursuing you. He's brought you into a cafeteria in the, on a Sunday. That doesn't make any sense. Other than God pursuing you and wooing you in, God is running after you. I want you to have this perspective of God that when I encounter difficulty, when I struggle, when I mess up, when my life is not what I think it should be, God does not view me like I view me. And then the same thing I apply to others, that when their life is a mess and when things are going wrong with them, I don't view them like I want to or like they view them. I view them like God views them. And I engage with them like God would engage with them. God runs after those who are struggling and those who are in the midst of difficulty, and so do we. We run after these kinds of things. We're not hesitant to get dirty and get our hands involved in the difficulties of the world and the darkness of the world and the grimy problems of each other's lives. We're running into those things because we want to be Jesus' ambassador. God runs after you. And I love that here you see the running, if you look at the verse, it's motivated by compassion. It's motivated by, it says he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him. It wasn't just love that motivated his running. It was compassion. And compassion is particularly not self-serving. 
When you love someone, there's generally a lot of things in it. For, like, I love my son. I get a lot out of that. It's not wrong, but it's this back and forth thing between my love for him gives me a lot in return. Compassion is a little different where it's just all out. It's just extended out. It's just empathy. It's a love for the other person regardless of their interaction with you, regardless of what you get out of the picture. It's just seeing someone in need and empathizing, having compassion for them, being so other-centered that you're not mindful of yourself. It's this kind of love that the Father shows that we see Jesus exemplifies for us. He has this deep, deep compassion, this deep concern for our well-being, that when he sees us not doing well, it bothers him. And when we turn and come back to be restored, he rejoices because he has compassion, because he loves. So this, the running is motivated by compassion, not by self-serving. So number one, God runs after you. And that's how we should engage with the world around us. Number two, God, the Father, is ready to receive you. Look at this again. He embraced him and kissed him. I just want you all to put yourselves in the feet, in the shoes of him. Like when you think about the kind of things we require for people to get back in our good graces. The kind of evidence they have to show. The kind of things they have to do to not have a cold shoulder anymore. The kind of things they have to earn back from us. The trust they have to require. All the things that's required for a restoration in a relationship, God flows through all of them and extends 100% of himself to receive him right away without even knowing yet if this life change is legitimate here. Now, obviously, God would know, but the example is the father he doesn't even know if he's coming back for whatever reason. He hasn't even heard the speech yet. He has no idea why he's coming back. He's just glad to see him. He doesn't know what kind of mess he's made of his life yet. There was no Instagram. The guy wasn't posting on Instagram. His father was looking at it like, man, he's a mess. There was none of that. He didn't know, probably. So now you have this terrible picture of his life and the father seeing him, feeling compassion, being ready to receive him. You see, uh, he embraced him and kissed him. And then look, uh, quickly bring, y'all read this with me, the what robe? Best. The best robe. You got to read the Bible like this. That word's there for a reason. The best robe. It wasn't like, bring this guy or get him some clothes. He's an idiot, but I'm going to take care of him. He's my son. You know, he wasn't like that. Like, get him something, take care of him. But like, no, we can't let him feel like he's okay. He needs to pay. You know? And he's like, no, bring him his best robe. Actually, as well, put a ring on his hand. Like, decorate him unnecessarily with jewelry. He doesn't need a ring on his hand. That doesn't necessary for survival in the world. He gives him a ring to show affection and love. He is ready to receive him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He gives him the best robe. He gives him shoes on his feet and a ring on his hand. We're going to see in a second. He throws a party. He is ready to receive him. Once again, there is no hesitation. There is no hesitation. The same way God is teaching us, he deals with us. There's no hesitation. In Christ, we have a relationship with God and full access when God deals with us. This is what he does. He is ready to receive immediately. If we turn and repent, he is ready, right on the spot, to receive us, to give us the best of everything that he has. Right? And remember, those of you who are in Christ, the first time you trusted Jesus, he went ahead and gave you eternal life from the beginning, before you ever did anything good or proved it or whatever. God gave you all of himself from the very moment you decided to follow him, generally from your heart, repented from your sin and followed Jesus. He gave you everything. Biblically speaking, it's called an heir. You're an heir of everything that God has with Christ. You're like Christ's brother or sister. Everything that God has is yours, which is the point he's going to make to the older brother in a second. 
God is ready to receive you immediately. And so the same is true for other people. He is ready to receive them. He is ready to receive them. And so we ought to be ready to receive them as well. This is the kind of church that we need to be. We're running after the broken and ready to receive those far from God. We are not afraid or dismayed when somebody walks in here that's completely off the we're not afraid of that. We're excited about that. When somebody walks in here that's so far from God, we're super excited from that. If you walked in here and so far from God, we're super excited about that. This is what we are after. We are ready to receive, both in the church gathering and outside in the world. We are a group of people who are ready to receive others, no matter what their condition may be. This is the kind of thing we want to be, and particularly when we value the one, we are ready to receive them. So number one, he runs after you. Number two, he is ready to receive you. Number three... He rejoices in your repentance. He rejoices in your repentance. This is verses 23 and 24. Look, he throws a party. Bring the fat calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. This is my son was dead. He's alive. They began to celebrate. This is like, a, so my, um, using a lot of Josiah examples today, but he is four and he will not say I'm sorry. Like he just refuses. He refuses to say I'm sorry no matter what you do, no matter what punishments. Doesn't matter. He absolutely will not give in to say I'm sorry. If I'm like, bro, just like whisper it, man. Just anything. Just mouth it. You just mouth it for me. I can teach him sign language. All you got to do is this. That's it, man. That's it. Just do this real quick. And he absolutely refuses to say sorry. He'll do something to his brothers and he just refuses. There's just nothing you can do. You can, you can bribe him. You can threaten him. It just doesn't matter. He absolutely will stand his ground. He's the most stubborn kid I have. He refuses to say I'm sorry. He absolutely won't do it. And we'll go over and over again. Eventually we've learned, listen, if we make him say I'm sorry, we'll be fighting this for hours. I don't even want to get in that. Let's figure out another way to resolve this conflict where he recognizes that he was at fault. But if we tell him he has to say I'm sorry, before he can get ice cream, he'll never get ice cream. This is going to be a fight to the bedtime. And so we try to avoid that. But there's been a few times, a few times, where after tons and tons of begging, he'll say, and look, he'll say, I'm like, what was that? I'm like, what? And say it. You won't. You won't. Get and then as soon as we hear that, we go, we're like, man, we're so excited. We're like, he, he barely gave us anything, but it was so much effort to get something out of him. When he, for a second, obeys and says, I'm sorry, at even the smallest level, we basically celebrate like this. We throw a party. We're so excited. We give them high fives like, yeah, it's awesome, you know. Try to give some confidence, some encouragement that you should keep saying I'm sorry is a good thing to do with your life. To say I'm sorry, to recognize that you have faults and that you do wrong things and say I'm sorry. And we throw him a party. And so the same type of picture we see here, that no matter how meek and how little our return and offering back may be, if it's genuine, God receives it and throws a party. Right? So it's not like, man, I really messed up, and now, whoo, I'm charging the hell. I'm the best Christian y'all ever met, man. If you saw my life, you'd be, well, and then God's like, okay, now we'll celebrate. No, it's like I'm stumbling in, like, Lord, I legitimately cannot do this. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be living. I shouldn't have done. I should live this way. Would you forgive me? I love you. And he's like, yes! Boom, throwing a party. Or as soon as one sinner who doesn't know Christ decides to follow him, like some of you may need to do today, if you don't know Jesus, he loves you, he died for you in your sins, he rose again from the dead so you could have eternal life, he brought you into this room to hear that message, and if you turn to Jesus with any sort of genuineness and authenticity in your heart, the Lord will receive you, he is excited to throw a party for you to become part of his family. God likes to party, which is important, because that means Christians should like to party too. Amen. 
This is important. Services should be a celebration. This is not like, oh, you and yeah, I thought y'all, I thought everybody did pretty good. People seem pretty like, yeah, this is awesome. Okay, that's good. They should keep doing that. Services are a celebration. If God is throwing a party, then we should throw parties. If God rejoices when people follow him, then we should rejoice in the fact that we're in here following Jesus and he loves us and he's given us everything. And this should be a celebration. Every time we gather in your groups, in your houses, while we meet at church, we should be a celebratory people. I get so sick of whole home Christians. Man, get that out of here. I don't understand. There's just no, there's no wholeness in here. So there's celebratory, celebratory. And some of you have to fight for that, and that's fine. Some personalities like me just like to be happy, and that's cool too. Some of y'all just like to not be happy, and I understand it's a personality thing, not a holiness thing, so nobody's better than anybody. Some people just, man, they're kind of down and out. Some people are overly optimistic. My wife sometimes thinks I'm overly happy and optimistic. I should be sadder sometimes, you know? Like, you should just be sad and worried about something. You know, that would make her feel better if I was sometimes sad and worried. Uh, and I do, I do, of course, get sad like normal people. But you guys know what I'm saying. So be, celebratory is not a matter of personality. Celebratory is a matter of conviction. It's a matter of understanding. It's a matter of being aware of everything God has done for you. We're not just running a church service. We're celebrating the fact that instead of getting the wrath of God, we get the grace of God. So we celebrate. We're like super excited. We're the kind of people that people walk in and they're like, what is happening here? Why are these people so happy? And then they know some of your lives, you know? And they're like, man, I know exactly what's happening in your life. The fact that you're happy right now befuddles me. Like, I don't understand. We should have that kind of thing where, like, man, you, something crappy just happened in your life. You're sitting there, like, jumping up and down. You're super happy. Like, what's wrong with you? That should be the kind of MO that we bring. When somebody comes to a city like church service, they encounter a celebration. And, of course, there's room for reflection and conviction and sorrow and all those things. Obviously, those things are appropriate. But the tenor of a Christian is celebration. If God parties, so do we. So we want the times that we gather to be a party. We want everybody to come in excited and ready, celebrating what God has done, thinking about all that he's done for you and being so excited about everything God is and will be for you forever. Now we see here, we notice this was one of the important parts we discussed earlier. God doesn't dismiss your sin. He rejoices in your repentance. So as far as we can tell, and as we know throughout the rest of the scriptures, it's genuine repentance the Lord honors. And here, he seems sorrowful for sin. He turns back, and we get the same picture in our lives, that when we generally are sorrowful sin, when our sorrow over sin affects our behavior, so we turn and stop living our sinful life, we pursue the life God has for us, we go to him for restoration and help, and to restore us again. When we do that, the Lord honors that, that repentance. When we acknowledge our sin, the Lord honors our repentance. And then he grants all these wonderful things that we've seen. But repentance is an important part. There was a party in heaven because there was bad news for people. Remember, God values people. Not because we're valuable, but because he has esteemed us valuable. He puts value on us. We're the mess ups. And God looks at us and says, you're a mess up, but I put value on you. I ascribe value to you, even though you're not inherently valuable. Myself included. So God loves you that much to give you value even in the midst of your trouble. 
He values you and He loves you, but at the same time, our sin has brought about the wrath of God, that we deserve hell, we deserve separation from God forever. This is bad news, but God values you. He wants good news for you. So He sends Jesus to die for our sins, rise again from the grave, so that everyone who trusts in Him will be saved. When someone goes from bad news to good news, because God values you, He rejoices. So listen, the reason some of us aren't celebrating is we just don't value what God's doing. In our own life, in other people's lives around us, when somebody comes to know Jesus, man, I mean, I'm, I'm included in this. But I should just be, every time somebody tells me I led some of the Lord, I should like clap and throw I should do all sorts of stuff. You know, it's something like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. But we should have a totally different perspective. Valuing people, understanding the trouble that everyone's in apart from God, and then they get hope in Jesus. We value them so much that we, we celebrate and you know this is true for people close to you, family members. And stuff. When people you really love, because they're related to you and just naturally close to you, have trouble, they get out of trouble, and now they have good news to share. You, you get excited, you celebrate, because you value them. And so God wants us to have that perspective about everybody. God parties, so we party, we celebrate. God values people, so when they repent and turn to Him, He celebrates. Number four, He reserves the kingdom for you. So you see this picture. You got the one son who messes his life up. You got the other son who's an ungrateful jerk. They're both a problem, and they're both all of us, you know. So when you read the Bible, don't be like, "Oh, that prodigal son, he's a joke," you know. And be like, "Oh yeah, that's me." Oh, the second story is me too. It's all wow, fantastic. It's all me, great. Uh, <clears throat> always read yourself. Remember, if you're not David, you're the scared people in the story, right? That's the wish. I always read the Bible. Okay, we're 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 part of the problem. God's the solution. We're not the heroes of the story. Uh, it's a good way to read the Bible. So you now have this guy, his older brother, uh, and he's mad. And we, you know what he says in verse 31 is awesome. It's the same thing I would say to any archi you know, the same thing you say to archives. If you're upset on throwing a party, like, everything I had was always yours. Like, everything I had was always yours. All that is mine, including the calf I just killed for him. It's always yours. Always been yours. And I wondered a little bit if the reason he didn't get to party is he didn't ask. I just wonder, like, he loves him. It's not like he's a stingy father. You think of James 4, too. You have not because you asked. What if we didn't enjoy all that God has for us because we just didn't ask for it? The same type of grace he wants to extend. God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't play favorites. God loves everybody at the same level. He doesn't play favorites. And so the same experience, he longs for one, he longs for the other. So if it was always yours and you don't experience it, the problem might just be you never asked. I think so often we miss in our relationship with God simply because we're not asking, we're not meditating or thinking about all the promises God has given us. What is it really like to have eternal life? What is it really like to live the abundant life God has called us to? How does this all work? How can we really enjoy this? We're just running through life. And if we would practice like we did this morning, gratefulness and thankfulness and praise, I think we would experience more. Uh, the kind of blessings and the kind of outpouring of his spirit that God has. That he wants to give his children. He's, re get this, he's reserving the kingdom for you. It's the same thing he says to all of us who are in Christ. Everything I have is yours. Literally. Everything. The universe, the world, heaven, you name it, it's yours. Already yours. Now think about how this would change your perspective on a day-to-day -day basis. How much contentment that would bring. Instead of comparing to others because you feel a lack, you say, well, actually, I got everything, so now I'm freed up from this comparison game that allows me to be content. If I'm not comparing to other people, I can value them. 
what keeps me from valuing them is I'm comparing myself to them. I'm either higher or lower. If I'm lower, I'm jealous, so I don't value them. If I'm higher, I'm prideful, so I don't value them. Either way, I've misvaluing them because I'm comparing myself to them. And so God wants to free you from that comparison by namely saying, not like you're awesome or you're better than them. That's not the way. He's saying, listen, everything you ever wanted is yours. All my kingdom. Everything that would give you status and worth and like future and a hope, all that's yours. It's literally all yours. There's nothing in my kingdom that you can't have. It's all yours all the time. You can experience to a great degree now, and then you'll experience fully without hindrance forever. It's all yours. I've reserved it for you. I'm keeping it for you. No one can take it away. It's yours. I guarantee it. You will have it fully and forever, and nobody can change that truth about you. And if we experience that and really believed and sunk that in, that God's reserving his whole kingdom for us, I think we would stop comparing and begin to be content. That would free us up to value people. It would free us up to value others because we're not concerned about how they compare to us. Free us up from the pride and free us up from the shame, from the jealousy, from the bottom. It allows us to value people like God does because we let him fill our cup. We let him be everything to us. I love this, this kind of final picture we see here that God runs after sinners. He's ready to rejoice in their repentance. And then he takes that same group of people and gives them everything he has. So he runs after them. He does all the initiative and the work, right? This guy like stumbles to his father. His father runs after him and saves him and does everything, right? So this guy has no, like whatever. He just turns and God, and Jesus, the father takes care of him and so does God with us. And then he's ready to receive. And then he takes that group of people and he blesses them with everything that he has. The mercy, you guys know this, is not getting what we do deserve, which is wrath. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is the kingdom. So God gives us mercy by not punishing us in hell forever, in Jesus. God gives us grace by not only not punishing us, but, so to speak, putting tens of millions of dollars in our bank account, giving us heaven, giving us eternal life. So we get mercy and grace. They have two different functions. And we see the beauty of how much God values people and what he does for them and how he extends love for them. In the same way, we should have that same attitude with others. God is an amazing father. So some of you in this room have had terrible fathers. And on this day is a terrible day. Some of you in this room want to be a father and it hasn't worked. Some of you in this room uh, want to be a father and you're not even married yet. And you're trying to figure that out. Some of you in this room have a bad understanding. Some of you have not had a good father. Whatever it looks like. But what we see from this picture is these four characteristics of your perfect father. And how those characteristics should allow you to enjoy him. Should restore the broken pieces of your life. And should give you the framework by which you serve and minister to other people. So in the same way that God extends these kinds of things to us, these are the kinds of things we extend to others. We are this kind of people. We're running after people, ready to receive them. People that are far from God, we bring them in. We're so excited for that. We are enjoying the kingdom that God is reserving for us. So we celebrate. We're a celebratory people, ready to throw a party. So finally, the mission of this church, therefore, is to take part in the mission of God. That's very simple. The mission of this particular church in this particular place is simply to take part in the mission of God, which is this, going after the one, pursuing those far from God and hoping that they come to know him and follow him. We value everyone just like God does. Our mission is not just out there, but it's in here. As we pursue people who are right far from God, we regularly repent of sin together. We encourage one another in God's love for us. We fall more in love with him together. Our mission field is both out there and in here. So we encourage one another to live these things out together. This is who we hope to be uh, as a church, as City Light. This is what we hope to see happen. And so the final question then, we'll be back to the beginning, the value of the one. Who's your one? 
Who's your one that when you leave from this place, the Lord would use you to go share this kind of love with? The Lord would use you to go minister to. The Lord would use you to receive. The Lord would use you to run after. The Lord would use you to be his hands and feet to show the same kind of love we see in Luke 15. Who's your one? How can this place be a launching pad, not a landing place for you to go live the life God has called to you? And also, are you enjoying the love God has for you as your father? Do you view him this way? Do you understand how he views you? And you should leave from here, not only pursue your one, but pursuing God, knowing that in Christ nothing is in between you, even if you've had a terrible week. God leads you and loves you and sees you the same as he did before. So run after God. Don't let anything hold you back from that. Run after the one and let the Lord use you to bring them to Christ. And if you're in this room and you are the one, we want to give you the chance to follow Jesus today. To repent from your sin, to trust in his salvation for you and his love for you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And this whole passage is designed to show you that. There's nothing you could do that's too much for him. So today's the day he's given you the chance to follow him. We'd love for you to participate with us as we try to do that together. So would you guys pray with me? Uh, we're going to sing another song. just to take a minute uh, as, we, as we prepare to, to celebrate through song, just to reflect on everything God is for you. Reflect on these characteristics that He's run after you. Reflect on everything that He's done for you. So just take a couple minutes, you and the Lord. Receive, receive everything that He is for you in Jesus. Thank you so much for being our Father. Thank you that you have run after us. Thank you that you have received us. Thank you that you have rejoiced over us. Thank you that you are preserving your whole kingdom for us. I pray that these truths from your word would overwhelm us. That it would cause us to be grateful and content in you. That it would cause us to celebrate. And that you would use all of that to help us leave from here and legitimately run after you. No hindrances. No hesitations run after others who are far from you. Lord, we love you and we sing another song just to celebrate your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall stand and sing.